0: Well, I'm glad you're here today because you are walking in on the first installment of a new series that we're doing. We're back in the Gospel of Mark, obviously, this morning. We've taken a little break um, to do a series that ended last Sunday. And I'm really excited about this new series. And it's titled, uh, as my brother said earlier, The Ruler Who Serves. That's really what the entire book of mark is about it's about jesus how he's a different kind of ruler because he's the ruler who condescends and he serves his people he doesn't exploit them he doesn't abuse them he doesn't step on them for power he doesn't control and manipulate them he comes and he serves them and the ultimate act of service is sacrifice to lay down your life on behalf of the people and there's a a lot of things we see in the world today that remind us of that Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but just a few months ago, we approached the anniversary of a really um, history-making event. Did you know that? Princess Diane, uh, Princess of Wales, in August of 1997, passed away in a tragic car accident in Paris. And the whole world mourned her passing, and I don't know if you know this or not, but There's a reason why she was so popular. Not just in Britain, not just in England, not just in in the city, uh, London there. She was globally famous. People loved her. What was it about her that made her so famous, so attractive, um, so irresistible to people? It was her love. It was her kindness. It was her empathy. She had compassion for people. She loved to be around people, and she captured the hearts of people all over the world. She would go places nobody else would go. She would talk to people that nobody else would talk to. She would even reach out and touch people that were untouchable, people that had HIV. She had a ministry for for lepers, believe it or not. And she broke so many different kinds of protocol for the royal family. She was a problem for them. She was doing things that made them look bad. She changed the entire way that royalty viewed common people. And in doing so, she also changed the way that common people viewed royalty. You may remember this. One of the most controversial things she ever did is she refused to wear those white gloves that princesses and kings and queens would wear so they didn't have to touch the common people. She took them off and threw them down, and she reached out and embraced a man who had HIV. Now, this was back before they knew a whole lot about HIV. It was still people considered it to be quite a risk to touch somebody, and she didn't care. She broke with protocol. Why? Because she had compassion for people. She loved them. She cared for them. In fact, uh, I'll just put up a few slides in the slideshow this morning to show you. Tell me if you can see why people love Princess Diane. There's a guy with HIV. Go to the next one. A little injured child in a third world country. Next slide. Elderly people, sick children. The next one. And that's why she was deemed, when she passed away, the Prime Minister, Tony Blair... He, he, in just a, a, he's a wordsmith and just in a little statement he captured what everyone already believed that she was, remember what it was? The people's princess. That's what Princess Diana was known for. The people's princess. Whenever she went and did all those things and visited all those people she wasn't just performing her royal duties. Okay, Because back then that wasn't a part of your royal duty. She's the one that really introduced that celebrities and wealthy people and famous people usually using, using their power using their influence using their authority to help people. She really ushered that in in a way that it was unprecedented and because of that people loved her. She would visit people that were homeless. She would take her two sons, Prince William and Prince Harry outside the walls of the palace to go to a homeless shelter. She really didn't have a desire to even live in the palace. She preferred rehabilitation centers and hospitals and soup kitchens. That's where she loved to be because she loved people. Sarah and I watched the documentary that that came out amongst... There's like seven or eight documentaries that that broke ground because of this 20th anniversary of her passing. And one of them is on Netflix and it's called Seven Days That Shook the World. And I was just blown away because I was just, you know, I was just a teenager when she passed away I didn't pay that much attention. To global things, before the internet, Um, but I learned so much by watching this. Whenever she got married to Prince Charles, 750 million people watched their wedding. Even before she became the people's princess, she was popular, and do you know why? Because she was one of the first English women to ever marry royalty that was an heir to the throne. And in and, and doing that, she had to quit her job. She was the only woman who ever had a paying job that married in the royalty. She was a kindergarten teacher. And she quit her job as a kindergarten teacher to marry the man who would be king. And the people loved her for it. I mean, she was, she was just a commoner before that, really. She was 19 years old when they got engaged. She married at 21. 600,000 spectators lined up to see this new princess. And eventually, her popularity surpassed that of Prince Charles. And that didn't go well. You remember? They had a very troubled marriage. In this documentary, they would, people would say, you know, when they were coming down the street in a parade on a float, it was interesting because the people would look ahead and they would see whichever side of the street Diana was on, they would cross the street and go over there. And Prince Charles, that got man, that got under his skin. And they had a troubled marriage. They separated. Eventually, in 1996, um, they divorced. And then, of course, a year later, she was killed in a tragic accident. And the whole world mourned the loss of their princess. The whole world mourned her loss. On the day that they had her funeral peer go through the, the streets of London, every business shut down. All the sporting events were canceled and rescheduled. The whole world was just silent as they mourned the loss of their princess. Why is that? Because she had compassion. She touched people in a way that nobody else had ever done before. She loved playing with children. She would dress with jewelry that was dangling so the kids could play with it. She broke with all the royal protocol, and people loved her for it. There was an interview that was done on TV uh, that was really controversial before, obviously, before she passed away, after she was separated. And Panorama Magazine asked this question. This is what they said. What role did you see for yourself as Princess of Wales? Listen to her answer. She says, I found myself being more and more involved with people who were rejected by society drug addicts, alcoholics, battered this, battered that, and I found an affinity there. She says, I respected very much their honesty. In hospices, when people are dying, they're much more open and vulnerable and much more real. And I appreciated that. I'm lucky enough that I found my role, and I'm very conscious of it. I love being with people. She loved being with people. Common people, sick people, diseased people, alcoholics, addicts, that's the kind of people she loved me around. She said this, I think the biggest disease this world suffers from today is people feeling unloved. And I know that I can give love for a minute, for half an hour, for a day, for a month, but I can give and I'm very happy to do that and I want to do that. I would like a monarchy, she says, talking of the Queen, that has more contact with its people and I don't mean by riding around bicycles and things like that, but just having a more in-depth understanding. You know what she's saying? Compassion. Compassion. And then he asked this, do you think you will ever be queen? This gives you a window into her ambition. Do you think you will ever be queen? No, I don't. I don't want to be queen. I'd like to be queen in people's hearts, but I don't want to be the queen of this country. That's why people loved her. She just seems so innocent in a sense, right? And I know she was a sinner, obviously. She had issues in her life. But that's interesting to me. Somebody that's royalty becomes the people's princess because she is for the people. She's their advocate. She's their voice. Suddenly somebody who has power and wealth and influence uses that to help people, to serve people. She was a ruler who stooped down to serve on the level that people could understand and they loved her for it. she gave them what they never had before, a voice with royalty, and they loved her. And did you know that just two years after she passed away, just two years, her popularity escalated and surpassed that of the queen. What an embarrassment, right, if you're the queen. Um, And of course, when she died, she was separated from Prince Charles, so she was no longer considered royalty. And so all of England gave a, a cry of outrage when they, when they learned that she wasn't going to be given a royal wedding. And so they caved in and they gave her a royal wedding and they, they broke protocol. They draped the royal standard over her coffin. The queen and the princess, the queen and, and Prince Charles and Prince Harry and Prince William all came out and mourned publicly. The queen, I don't know if you remember this, for the first time in 50 years, the queen went on televised, did a televised interview and spoke to the people. All kinds of things changed and they flew the Union Jack flag at half-mast at the palace, um, just in celebration and, and just a tribute to her life. And look, you don't even have to look at royalty like Princess Diana, to see that. Find a celebrity that people love, and you'll find somebody who's down to earth, who's humble, who's kind. Think, think of Elvis. Do you know what, why so many people were just uh, enamored by Elvis? Because he was simple, he was down to earth. He was one of the first people to really engage his audiences, to touch them, to be amongst them. He drove a pickup truck. He never became sophisticated. He sang songs about things that weren't really vulgar, even though his dancing was kind of vulgar, I guess, for his day, the, the hip gyration thing. Anyway, he talked about don't be cruel, puppy dogs, blue suede shoes. You remember that? And then, and then there's actors and actresses in Hollywood today um, that you'll find down to earth. Keanu Reeves and... and um, Johnny Depp, I know, you know, they may have different political ideologies, but they give their money away, they go to hospitals, here's one of Captain Jack Sparrow going to the hospital, he dresses up, in he doesn't get any money for that, and I don't think they're doing it just for publicity, and Keanu Reeves, I don't know if you knew this, he rides the subway because he would rather hang out with common people than hang out with the movie stars, he gave all the people involved in the Matrix trilogy movie a Harley-Davidson for a bonus, um, the guy's pretty amazing. And, and they're down to earth. They like hanging out with common people. And that's why people love them so much. So, why am I telling you all of this? Uh, because I think this is why Jesus was so wildly popular. I mean, think about it. He was the Messiah, he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. But who did he spend his time with? Common people common people. He was their advocate. He was their voice. He cared about them. He had compassion for them. And really, the next four weeks, this is a long introduction to a short series, okay? The next four weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus as the ruler who serves. And his service was ultimate service. I mean, as high as you can go, because the whole um, crux of the entire gospel of of Mark is found in chapter 10, verse 45. And it says this, for Jesus said this, I did not come to be served but to what serve and to give my life a ransom for many that's the ultimate act of service is you give up your life on behalf of your enemies (laughs) i mean think about that for a minute guys it's one thing to lay your life down for righteous people for good people for benevolent people for people who are worthy of your affection and your love and your admiration jesus laid his life down for his enemies That's crazy. That's insane. No other religious ruler ever did that. No king ever did that. Jesus did that. He is the ruler who serves. And I think really in this passage, you get a glimpse into that. It's all in verse 34. Look at this passage again. Verse 34 says this. Jesus is with his disciples. He's tried to slip away. He's tried to give them a reprieve, give them a break. We talked about that the last time we were in Mark, so I'm not going to revisit that. He knows his disciples are tired. They've been all over the place. He doesn't want them to burn out. He doesn't want them to rust out. There's other options, by the way, besides those two. People say, you going to burn out for Jesus or rust out? How about neither? How about I just run the race he gave me and and, and do the best I can, right? Um, And people say, well, the devil's not sleeping. Well, I didn't know he was my role model, you know? (laughs) Um, So Jesus has given his disciples a break. He takes them away to a desolate place, but they can't escape the crowds because people... Love Jesus. He was, ir- he was irresistible. So they chased him on foot. He's on the Sea of Galilee. They're watching him running around the shore, and they beat him to the other side. And Jesus is tired. His cousin, John the Baptist, has just been killed by King Herod. So he's sad. He was a human being too. And he had human emotions. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 34. Check this out. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them if you'd like to write in your bible or highlight in your whatever kind of uh device you have circle or underline that word compassion that is a powerful word and that word is only used for jesus in the new testament it's only used for him and i know we have different levels of compassion he had ultimate compassion that word in greek is is kind of crazy it's splankna. Splankna, it means gut-wrenching. It means visceral. It means you feel it in your bowels. You, you, it means I feel your pain in my heart and I absorb it. I absorb it. You ever, did you feel that way when you saw the, uh, the floods in Texas when the hurricanes hit? Or the, the uh, people in Puerto Rico that lost their lives, they lost their power, they basically are losing their, uh, their livelihood there. Didn't your heart just go out and want to help them? Didn't you feel compassion? That's what this word means. It means gut-wrenching. Jesus saw people, and listen, I could say so much about this passage. These are people ultimately, they don't remain true followers of Jesus. Eventually, they'll be crying out for his blood, and Jesus is the Son of God. He has all knowledge, he knows the future, he knows that. But he still hurts for them. He still has compassion, he still has love for them, he's still faithful to them. He looks at them, and he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. They have no direction. They have no organization. They're not being trained. They're not being fed. They're not being taught. The shepherds of Israel, the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're fleecing these people. They've been spiritually abused. They've been manipulated. They've sat under false legalistic, legalistic teaching by self righteous, self serving leaders. Their political leader, Herod, he's a clown. You know the passage right before this? Do you know what happens? Herod kills their favorite preacher. It's, it's hard to put ourselves into the historical context, but we have to do that. Their favorite preacher before Jesus came was John the Baptist. Do you remember what Herod did? He put him in prison. He had a, uh, had a big banquet at his palace. And uh, Herodias, his, his illegal wife, her daughter danced an exotic dance and it pleased Herod. And he was probably half full of liquor and wine, and he said, I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. And she said, I want John the Baptist head on a platter right now. And he went and he beheaded John. So what kind of leaders are these people that are scattered sheep without shepherds, what kind of leadership are they under? A brutal uh, murderer, self-righteous Pharisees. These people are unhappy. They're, they're disappointed. They're disgruntled. So look, look at this. I, I, I put a slide together to show you We'll do this first. We'll do this first. Leave that up. A a few things about uh, this miracle. This miracle is really important. The feeding of the 5,000. Even if you've not been in church much or most of your life, you've heard about this. You've heard it referenced. This is the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus that's in all four of the gospel accounts. You guys know that there's four gospel accounts in, in the New Testament. Matthew's version, Mark's version, luke's version and john's version okay um, only this miracle is recorded in all four what's that mean that means it's important all the the men that wrote the new testament that were there re- remembered this it's stuck in their mind it's very important so that's the first thing it's it's in all four gospels it's a really important miracle and here's the second thing about it it's really easy to misunderstand why this is in the bible the disciples misunderstood it in fact look at this text Just a little bit later, this is just a little bit later in the chapter, Jesus walks on water, He rescues them in their hour of crisis and need. He gets in the boat, and it says this, And He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. What's the loaves? It's this miracle right here that just happened before they got in the boat and the storm came. They didn't understand about the loaves. They misunderstood the miracle. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Jesus is doing something here that that breaks with everyone's expectations for Him. It breaks with everyone's expectations of Him. What these people are really wanting, all these sheep that are scattered, they want a revolution. Talking about a revolution. Remember that song? That's what they want. They want a revolution. They're fed up with their leaders. They've had it up to here. Look at this slide. Let me show you uh, the, the difference here between Herod's feast and Jesus' feast. Because he's given a feast here in the wilderness. Herod just gave a feast in his palace. And I think the author here, Mark, I think he's contrasting and comparing these. Herod's feast was at the royal palace, right? Jesus' feast was in the barren location in the middle of the desert, middle of nowhere. Uh, The guests of Herod were the wealthy, the powerful, the royal blood, the influential, the movers and the shakers, the VIPs. Jesus, commoners, peasants, women, children, 5,000 men. The entertainment at Herod's feast was exotic dancing. Uh, The entertainment at Jesus' feast was gospel preaching and then a miracle, which would have been pretty cool to be there and see, right? The end of the feast of Herod was a just man was executed, got his head cut off. The end of Jesus' feast was he had compassion for unjust people. And on and on it goes. What was the goal for Herod throwing this feast? To gain more notoriety, to gain more popularity, to appease his his critics. Why did Jesus do it? To serve the people. That's the difference. That's the difference. So hopefully that sets this up a little bit historically in your mind. This is what was going on at the time of this miracle. So um, it's easy to misunderstand this miracle. The disciples misunderstood it. I'm going to show you in a minute that all the the 5,000 men that were there, they misunderstood it, so we'd be naive to think that it's an easy thing to get, right? So let me ask the Holy Spirit now, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to help us understand this miracle so that we can benefit from it, so that we can leave help with application, so that we can appreciate you, your power, your beauty, your love, the way you serve us more than when we came. In Jesus' name I pray, amen okay so there's three things i want to talk about the first is scattered sheep are dangerous scattered sheep are dangerous you say what in the world are you talking about well whenever this term is used here jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd they're scattered that's really a political term it doesn't just mean they didn't have a pastor they didn't have a priest they didn't have those things or at least the ones they had. There was no shortage. There were all kinds of leaders, spiritual leaders. But what Jesus is talking about is they don't have anybody to organize them. They don't have anybody to provide for them and protect them. I mean, is Herod? Is Herod going to provide for them and protect them? I mean, and and we have parallels today. We're looking to the government to do this. We think our pastors... Um, I don't think you do, but we think our pastors are, are, are flawless leaders. They don't have clay feet. They're messiahs. And we're all disappointed and disgruntled and angry, and we're ready to protest. We're ready to revolt. These scattered sheep are very dangerous. And, and I won't get too much into the, the Greek details. I don't want to sound like a Bible nerd up here, but all the language here, they were coming and they were going, and there were 5,000 men. They were scattered sheep. The, the place where they were at It was known for a secret place where revolutions occurred. This is where uh, people that wanted to start a revolt would gather secretly. They would begin to train their people. They would distribute weapons. They would develop a strategy. And then there would be a war and there would be a bloodbath and there would be a slaughter and people would die and either the revolt would work or it would be shut down like it was several places we read. Am I still on here? so this is these scattered sheep are very dangerous you say what do you mean well they're volatile these people are distressed they've they've had it up to here and they are ready for change they can smell it they can taste it they're on the edge of their seat they want something to happen radically right now and they are ready to press that they're ready to take matters into their own hands they're desperate people and desperate people always do desperate things i mean we see that on the news right Every time you see somebody shooting up a crowd of people, like the Las Vegas, I don't, I don't know why that man did that. In fact, I don't think they know, right? They talked to his girlfriend, they talked to his brother, they talked to everyone, and, and as far as I know, the news I follow, they still don't have a clue why he did that. He didn't seem to be radicalized. I mean, he was radicalized at some measure, they just don't think it was with Islam. But people who do that are desperate. They're either angry at the government, uh, there's either you know, some mental instability with their health. But usually it's, it's they're very angry and, and this is them just doing something radical, something crazy, something illegal. And these people are in the same boat. Desperate, they are desperate people. They are ready for change. They are fed up with their leadership. And they are about ready to take matters into their own hands. What they want is freedom. That's what they want. They want freedom and they're willing to do anything that they can to do that, to accomplish that. So you get the language here. It's, it's, there's a mob. There's some excitement. There's emotion. There's desperation. I think most of the time we've read this story, we've heard lessons on this story, and we think of, oh, that's great. Jesus is in the... He, there's a picnic with Jesus, and a little boy You know, shares his lunch, which is true. In John's version, there's a little boy there that shares his lunch. But guys, this is a revolution. This is scary stuff. This is not spread out some blankets on the ground, and here comes Jesus. That's awesome. No, these are people. They're, they're probably worked up in a mob mentality. There's a feverish pitch of excitement. They're about to do something crazy. And you know what? I got to be honest with you. I meet people like this all the time, whether it's through counseling, whether they have just had it up to here, they've been maybe abused, they felt like they've been manipulated, or maybe their life is just absolutely out of control and they're desperate and, and, they're, and they're scattered. They have no leadership. They don't have any peace. They don't have any stability. Their life is unanchored, without moors, without direction. Those are the people that are desperate. Those are the people that do crazy things, right? That's that's the person that walks out of a 20-year amazing marriage. Maybe he's going through a midlife crisis. Maybe there's a change in his health. These people do do crazy things. Maybe they make this radical purchase or make a radical career switch. Uh, Maybe they're fed up because their kids barely talk to them. Or their marriage is, is just unfulfilled. It's not what they had hoped. Or their, their job is dull. They just lack excitement. They're just tired of their life. And they're on edge. And they're mad at the government. They're mad at their parents. They're mad at their employer. They're mad at their kids. I mean, these people aren't so very much unlike some of us sometimes, right? We're scattered. We're like sheep without a shepherd. And we need somebody to come in and bring stability, don't we? We need somebody to come in and organize us. That's what Jesus does here. We need somebody to come and do what Psalm 23 tells us the Messiah will do. Lead us beside still waters. Feed us with green pastures. That's what we need. We need peace. And Jesus sees these people and he knows what is about to happen. In fact, I've got I to read this to you. Because I don't want you to think I'm just up here and i make this stuff up. This is a pretty crazy miracle. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. I told you that there's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and I want to read to you what happens after this miracle because Jesus creates bread out of nothing. This is a creative miracle. You know, he had basically five barley crackers and two little sardines and he fed 5,000 men, probably 15,000 women and children. I mean, he feeds a stadium, an NFL stadium full of people, he feeds them. So what do you think the reaction is? Oh boy, we have our revolutionary leader. He is here and we are ready to overthrow the government, baby. We're ready to take back our territory that Rome has stolen from us and Herod has taken from us. They are ready for the revolution and they have their leader. And check this out. This is what it says in Mark's gospel. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Did you hear that? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? You know what they're they're ready to do after Jesus creates bread out of thin air? They're ready to come and stick a crown on his head, put a machine gun in his hand, and make him their guerrilla warfare leader. They're ready to take Rome back. They're like, this is our land, God gave this to us, let's go take it back, he's our leader. And Jesus says, no, you, you've misunderstood, and he leaves. He says, that my kingdom's not of this world. I didn't come here to put weapons in your hand. It's really interesting, isn't it? All the revolu- revolutionary leaders, if you follow throughout history, what do they do? Well, they have a strategy, they have an agenda, they have this indoctrination that they go through, they take their people to, to a secure and secret place where the government can't get to, Everybody has a place like that, you know? And they train them, and they distribute weapons. Sometimes they brainwash them. They hire young children who are too naive or innocent to know the difference. And then there's a slaughter, there's a bloodbath. They do something radical, right? And Jesus says, I'm not your leader. I didn't, I didn't come back. Jesus says, I'm going to do something radical, but not what you think I'm going to do. I'm a different kind of revolutionary leader. So what they want is a revolution. Scattered, sheep are dangerous. What they want is a revolution. What Jesus gives them is a reformation. Think about that. What Jesus does, does he distribute weapons? No. No, he preaches the gospel. Okay, look at it. Check this out. It's so easy to miss this and miss the meaning of this miracle. This is what it says. Now many saw Many saw them coming and recognized them. They ran there on foot. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they were ready to revolt. And so what did he do? Next verse, and he began to teach them many things. And the way this is constructed in the language, it doesn't mean he taught them nine million things. It, It means probably the best interpretation is he focused on this one thing, but he taught them for a long time, this one thing. What do you think Jesus was teaching them? What do you think it was? The gospel. He was teaching them the gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Repent. Repent. And come to your king. That's what Jesus was teaching them. Jesus didn't come to start up this revolution and do a bloodbath at the cost of the people's lives. No, he came to serve them. He came to serve them. And it's interesting what happens next. This is the next point. That was the first point. um, Is that scattered sheep are dangerous. They are. They're dangerous. Those are the kinds of things... Remember the whole Ashley Madison website blow up? Remember the motto? It was, life is short, have an affair. People that are scattered without sheep, they're in a midlife crisis, they're unhappy, they're disgruntled, they're dissatisfied, they're frustrated. That kind of thing is a lure to them. And Satan's in that kind of thing. Scattered sheep are dangerous. And so here's the second point, okay? Scattered sheep are powerless. Scattered sheep are powerless. See, these people are upset. They're disgruntled. But what can they do to help themselves? Nothing. They have no leader. They have no weapons. They've been under false teaching for all of their lives. They can do nothing to save themselves. They want freedom, but they can't secure it on their own. Somebody from outside is going to have to come and do it for them. Somebody's going to have to come and do it. Now listen, before we mentally excuse ourselves... Uh, from, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm not a mob leader. I'm not going to do something crazy. Um, let me remind you of something else in this passage. Not only were these scattered sheep on the mountainside powerless, they knew that Jesus is about to show them because they're hungry, they're tired. There's no, I mean, can you imagine a concert in the middle of the wilderness? Everybody shows up, you teach them all day, and then you realize, wait a minute, what are we going to do for food? <laughs> you know I was I, I served at a larger church two larger churches before I came here and we would host conferences and the one thing that we would talk about as a staff more than anything else was who's going to do lunch what are we going to what are we going to do to provide probably are we going to do Chick-fil-a is it going to be a grab bag is it going to be a beer bring your own lunch what is it going to be um and so all these people are there he's been teaching them all day it's in the middle of nowhere there's no McDonald's or drive-thru okay um so what's Jesus going to do what's he going to do He's going to show these people that, that they're powerless. He's going to also show, he's going to also show the disciples that they're powerless. Check this out. Check this out. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, "This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late." You know they're elbowing Jesus here. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, "You give them something to eat." What's going on here? What's he doing? See, these are going to be the men that that turn the world upside down. These are the first generation preachers in the first century in Palestine. And I've already shown you with the other slide that we put up that they didn't understand this. Their hearts were hardened. They don't yet understand the true identity of who Jesus is or what his message is. And I will be honest with you. I could read another passage to you from another account. As soon as this miracle is over and this mob mentality comes over and they try to force jesus to be their king you know what else jesus does he sends these disciples away to protect them that's going to be next week okay he tries to protect his disciples because to be honest with you they wanted the same thing that those scattered sheep wanted on the on the in the field that day they wanted jesus to be the revolutionary leader they're always asking him hey when's the kingdom when's israel going to take their place when are we going to overthrow the yoke of roman bondage that we've been under all these years so Jesus has to teach them something too, that they're just as powerless as the people that are on that mountainside. And that's why he says, no, those people aren't going anywhere. You know, Because the disciples are wanting to use them and get them out of the way. Jesus, remember, you, you, you came here to give us rest and to give us a reprieve and to, to help us get away and not burn out and not rust out. Remember that? So let's, let's get these people out of the way. And Jesus says, no, they've been manipulated and controlled enough. They haven't been provided for enough. They have need right now. They have true need and we're going to meet their need and you're going to help me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus is inviting his disciples to help him serve the needs of these scattered sheep? But first Jesus has to show them something. And Jesus wants to show you something too this morning. Our own powerlessness. Powerlessness. That's hard for a redneck to say. We are all just as powerless as those disciples were. Jesus says we're We're going to have to feed them. And they said, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. You feed them. Now, what's he doing there? Because these disciples, man, they're running. Now they're just as anxious and just as apprehensive and just as worried and panic-stricken as all the people are on the side of the mountain. They're going around, how much do you have? Do we have any food? Do we have any dinner? And you see how they answer him with sarcasm. You know, they come back. Look, he said, "Uh, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You know what that is? That's about a year's salary. (laughs) That's about a year's salary. So they're being sarcastic. It's like, do you know how much money it would take to feed all these people, Jesus? And we don't have any money. And then Jesus said this, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? I like what James Edwards said about this. He said, the disciples are complaining about what they lack. Jesus focuses on what they possess. See, Jesus is showing them you're you're powerless, you have to own your powerlessness, you have to own that you can't control your life, you can't control your own spirituality, you can't control your marriage, you can't control your job, you can't control your health. All these things apply from just this miracle to us today. Until we own up to our own powerlessness and ability to control James Edwards says this, the problem will not be resolved by something beyond them, but by something from among them. Jesus sees possibilities where his disciples see only impossibilities. For God can multiply even the smallest gifts that they have made available to him. Jesus is going to show these disciples, look, you're going to be the men who turn the world upside down, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to always provide for you. You're always going to have the resources because of me working through the Holy Spirit that you need. So he wants them to do inventory and and, and they say that we don't have anything. We don't have any money. And Jesus says, who said anything about money? We don't need money. We need food. Go and see what you have. So they find a little boy, another gospel account tells us, that had um, five little barley biscuits, which was a commoner's bread. It was poor man's bread and two little sardines. So some crackers and some sardines and Jesus said, bring them here to me. And what did he do? Look at the next verse here. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all, To sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Man, there's a lot of theology packed in that little statement. He divided the fish. (laughs) for 15,000 people. I mean, wouldn't you have liked to have been there? I confess to you, I've tried to envision what this miracle would have looked like, and I I can't. I don't know what it looked like. I mean, was there a basket there, and he just keeps handing it out? I've even read people that were liberal biblical scholars, and they said, no, 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 here's what happened. Um, What happened was there was a cave nearby, and Jesus always knew where he would be teaching, and he told the women that followed him, look, let's get some bread, and let's hide it in this cave. And I'm serious. God's my witness. People write this. And Jesus had long flowing white robes and he backed up against the cave and had some of his apostles in there and they shoved it up underneath his, his robe and it came out. I'm serious. I'm serious. That's more, that is more reasonable and rational to them and I guess more compelling than the fact that uh, Jesus spoke the world into existence, the Bible says. I don't think multiplying bread and fish would be, would be a problem. Jesus could speak 20 galaxies into existence as I'm sitting here preaching. I don't think it would have been a big deal for him to break the loaves and break the, the fish and multiply them. Do you? But here's what's amazing about this is Jesus settled them down. See, scattered sheep are dangerous, scattered sheep are powerless, but Jesus has this amazing ability to organize them because of his love for them. He organized them. He grouped them together. He found green grass for them. Now they were hungry. They were tired. They were angry. How in the world did Jesus pull this off? Well, he's God in human flesh, isn't he? He's the king who came to serve them. They know he cares about them. They know that he has compassion for them. So that's what Jesus does. And here's, here's the last point. And I hope this is helpful to you. I hope it's making sense. First thing, scattered sheep are dangerous. Second thing, scattered sheep are Powerless. And here's the third thing. This is the best part of this. Jesus loves scattered sheep. Jesus loves scattered sheep. And the Bible says he came and he laid down his life for the sheep. So let's let's go back and let's visit. Um, let's go back and visit this revolution. All right. These people want to revolt. Uh, these people want to do something radical. These people are ready to overthrow the government. They're ready for a bloodbath, for a slaughter. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he says, "I'm going to give you a reformation." But you know what? There will be a revolution too. And there is going to be something radical that happens. But it's not going to be anything like what you expect. Because the radical thing that's going to happen is I'm the king and and I have come and I'm not going to control you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to use you. I'm not going to exploit you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my life for you. So there is a revolution. There is a radical leader. But instead of taking other people's life, this is the crazy thing, guys, about the gospel. Instead of taking other people's life, Jesus is going to voluntarily give up his own life. See, revolutions lead to slaughter. They lead lead to war. They lead to a bloodbath. And Jesus said, there's no reason for these sheep to suffer that. They've already suffered enough. I will, I myself, I'll suffer the consequences for their sin. I'll lay down my life on their behalf. I'll take the bloodbath. I'll be the lamb who will be slaughtered on their behalf. Because, listen, revolutions, they always involve this aggressive and violent overthrow. And that's exactly what happened. You know, the Bible says that the crucifixion of Jesus was one of the, one of the most bloody, violent, and aggressive things that ever happened. Not only did he, was he marred, he didn't even look like a human being, but the Bible says in Isaiah in the Old Testament that the Father crushed him. Jesus was utterly abandoned and forsaken by His Father on that cross. And I think, really, I think this is what the disciples misunderstood in this miracle. Because here's the crazy thing about this. Jesus, it says, before He fed them, He picked up these these loaves of bread, right? And He blessed the people, and He blessed God, and He broke them. Now, let me ask you a question. What does broken bread symbolize in the Bible, in the New Testament? The body of Christ, right? We celebrate that when we have communion. The broken body of Christ. The shed blood of Christ. This was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. And the disciples missed that. And it's so easy for us to miss that. We want a revolution. We want reform. We want change. We want to do something something radical. We're ready for war. And Jesus says, no. He says, you're powerless. And you're scattered. And you need a leader. And you don't need war. You don't need violence. You don't need bloodshed. You need peace. So instead of giving them a bloodbath, Jesus gave them the gospel. Instead of taking their life, Jesus offered His life. Instead of controlling them and manipulating them and exploiting them, He served them and His own body would be slaughtered. And people always, always fail to understand that. Instead of war, He gave them peace. That's the mystery. That's the mystery of the gospel. Jesus says, you want freedom? I'm going to give you freedom. But I'm I'm not going to give it to you in a way that you're going to understand. Um, if you do it your way, you're going to lose your life. And I would say that to you. Do you feel free this morning? Is it, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want? Don't you want freedom? Don't you want the stability that, that Jesus is offering here? And Jesus says there's only one way to get it. You've got to go through me to get that. I'll give you peace that surpasses all understanding. I'll give you stability. I'll give you a hope. I'll give you freedom that only the Son of God can provide. But you've got to do it my way. You've got to relinquish control. You've got to put your weapons down. It's not going to be a revolt the way you think it is. I'm going to be the ruler who comes and serves you, and you've got to surrender to me. You've got to repent. You've got to turn from your sins and surrender to the Son of God. You've got to lay your weapons down. That's what the New Testament teaches. And that is what the, that's what the disciples always miss. Check this out. In the, in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see this later on, three different times in this Gospel, Jesus reminds them over and over and over exactly what His mission is. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over uh, into the hands of sinful men, and they're going to crucify me, they're going to abuse me, they're going to whip me and beat me, and I'm I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise. And look what it says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask Him. That happened three different times. Why? Because the gospel is just such a mystery, isn't it? Jesus accomplishes our freedom and our forgiveness and our peace in a way that no other religion religion offers it this way. It's through the cross. It's through the cross. Every other religion has a me first mentality, right? The leaders. Jesus says, no, my body broken for you. My blood shed on your behalf. And here's the best part of this miracle. Here's the best part of this miracle. I think there are some parallels to what Moses did in the wilderness here. Definitely there's some parallels there. Um, if you're a Bible nerd and kind of into geeky parallels and how the Bible corresponds with this and this, and you really dig in, dig in deep, connect all these lines, there's definitely uh, some parallels to what happened in the wilderness when Moses led the people of Israel out of the exodus from Egypt for 40 years. Because for 40 years, what did they eat? What did God feed them? Manna, right? And Jesus warned them, strictly warned them. He said, look, when you go out every morning, there's going to be manna on the ground. I'm going to provide for you. You're never going to be in want. So you've got to go out every morning, and you've got, to gather, you've got to gather all your food for that day. Remember, he warned them. What did he say? Do you remember, anybody? He said, to only get enough for one day. Don't get any extra. Don't you dare gather. But, and you remember the story? What did they do? They did what we would do if you were in the wilderness and happened to trust God. They went out and gathered. They were running around going, look, man. Got they got three or four armloads of manna, and what happened? That night, it turned to rot and maggots came and infested. it. It's kind of disgusting when you read that. Because God was judging them saying, you should trust me. You're going to have to learn to trust me. I will provide for you only what you need for each day. And then, of course, on the sixth day, he told them to go out and gather double because they had to rest on the Sabbath. And the miracle was that that bread didn't spoil that night. Isn't that amazing? But here's what's interesting about this. Jesus feeds these people. So he's saying, I'm I'm the, the true Moses. I'm the true mediator between sinful God and, and, or between, excuse me, scratch that from the record, between sinful man and holy God. He's the true mediator. He's the greater Moses. He, he was the one that Moses' uh, prophecies pointed to. But do you notice a difference between how much he provided here and how much Moses provided in the wilderness? There was leftover here. How much was left over? Twelve baskets. What is Jesus showing us here? Listen, Maybe you're here today, maybe you came for the first time in a long time to church, and you've always had this thought that Christianity is a killjoy, and Jesus has come to steal and rob and take all my joy away, and God is up in heaven looking for anybody that's having fun to shoot them and zap them, right? And it's Christianity is kind of, you better not shout, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, because God's watching, you better look busy. That's what they think. Jesus, I'm serious. Jesus, with this miracle and all the others, is completely overturning that. You know what the first miracle Jesus ever performed was? This makes Baptists really nervous. That's why we're non-denominational here, right? <laughs> What's the first miracle Jesus performed? He created, out of nothing except water, the best tasting wine the world has ever seen. I would have liked to take taken a sip of it. <laughs> or maybe a few drinks. I don't know. Well, that's neither here nor there. He created the best wine that anybody had ever tasted. Now, what's Jesus saying there? Joy, festivity, happiness. And what's he doing here? He's the Lord of the feast, isn't he? He's not a killjoy. Jesus is saying, listen, you don't need a revolutionary leader like you think you do. You need me. I have come to give you bread from heaven. You will never never hunger. This is the true bread. Don't labor for the bread that perishes. Listen, If you do it your way, you're going to have your revolution and it's going to leave you empty and embittered and just as dissatisfied and disgruntled and wanting to do something else radical the next time this happens as you were before. If you do it my way, if you do it my way, you'll have true happiness. You'll have true joy. You can face anything in life. You can face suffering. You can face the cancer diagnosis. You can face the spouse that dies before you do. You can face the kids that don't want to talk to you. You can face your pastor who doesn't understand you. You can face the government. Listen, let me tell you something, guys. I don't say very many political things up here because there's enough, there's enough political uh, um, talking heads in the world right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not the Lord of your conscience. I'm never going to tell you who you should, you should support, this senator or this representative, or you should be blue or red. I'm not going to tell you that. But the Bible has a lot to say about how we view politics and how we view politicians. And they are not the Messiah. None of them are. I don't care who's elected president. I don't care what political agenda they adopt. Somebody's going to be angry and dissatisfied and unhappy because people put too much expectations on the government. They do. The Bible says the government is to protect. It's to protect, to reward good, of course, we've lost all semblance of what good is. That's another sermon. To punish evil and to reward good. That's what the government's job is. The government's not the Messiah. And when we, we, try, we put those heavy expectations, the government can't carry that, and, and we're ready for a revolution. There's people all over the United States right now that are just like scattered sheep. They're all angry. That's why we had this movement, this protest. The police get called. It's crazy. I'm telling you, this, this miracle has never been more applicable for us than today. Jesus said, do you want peace? Quit looking to the government for peace. Quit looking to yourself for peace. Come to me. All you who are heavy laden and you need rest, come to me. I'm humble. I'm lowly. I'll give you rest for your souls. Do you know this shepherd? This is the shepherd who became a sheep and was slaughtered for scattered sheep like us. Do you know him?